Father, as we come here this morning to see... Well, saints, if you would open your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12 this morning. Um, we're going to be looking and focusing on verse 3. And if you want just a, a title for this message, it's simply just, um, you know, um, turn many to righteousness. And, and in other words, soul winning. If you've ever wondered what soul winning was, if you've ever read books on soul winning, if you've ever had a heart for the lost, um, this is a message that will help, I think, bring some clarity. If you've never had uh, a heart for the lost, this will bring, be, be a message to help bring clarity. Um, I think it's a good thing to recognize what these truths are. But here in Daniel 12, um, beginning in verse 3, it simply declares this. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Daniel here in verse 3 is talking about shining before the Lord, being a light, being that kind of brightness. And, and what he talks about is you're going to be like the stars there in the firmament forever and ever. The, the shining that actually takes and you take it with you into eternity. There are very few things that we take with us, but there are some things you can move ahead. And this is one of those things that is you have a heart for the lost that you, you know, where we say that you want to turn those to righteousness. And, and it talks about turning many to righteousness. Now, keep in mind that there's a context of what we're going to be looking at here as far as turning people to righteousness. Daniel doesn't open up his book with simply saying, turn people to righteousness. What he's been doing in this book so far is he's opened up this incredible context of the Antichrist. He's opened up this context of the Great Tribulation. And as we've learned about that, that you know, the, um, the Antichrist there, the one who will come on the scene, he who is the, 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 the one who goes past Antiochus, Epiphanes, the abomination of desolation, where there, in, when, when Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, and he made that mention that there's going to be a great tribulation. But he talks about this tribulation that he says, and it's going to be such as has never been seen since the beginning of the world, nor will it ever be from that time. There's going to be this great tribulation that is going to be happening here in the world. And Daniel begins to point about the Antichrist. He begins to point about this great tribulation. We talked about how there in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, it talks about this is a time of Jacob's trouble. Speaking of this incredible event that's going to be happening, we also see and we, we learned about here with, with the Antichrist and what's going to be happening through this period of the last three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation. It's called the Great Tribulation. And we made note as we've been going through Daniel that there's a portion in Revelation 12, verse 17 that talks about the dragon being enraged and making war. And this is what Daniel here in the context of saying, Tell people about life. Tell people about eternal life. And this is the key. He's been warning them about the Antichrist. He's been warning them about this great tribulation. He's been warning them about this time that is to come. And what he's trying to say is, listen, you, you want to talk to people and have them avoid this time. And I think how incredible is that, that we as the church, we know that we're going to be taken up. We're going to be you know, raptured before this time, before this tribulation 
But I think it's important to realize that what Daniel is doing before he talks about us drawing people to the Lord to everlasting life is he's telling us all these things you're saving them from. The other thing, keep in note that just prior, right after he talks about the Antichrist, the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, those things, the, you know, the, the dragon making war. Notice what he says in verse two. And this is also the context of what comes into verse three. In Daniel 12, verse two, he says, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. He talks about a resurrection from the dead. And I think it's important to realize that what Daniel is doing is talking to us about being those soul winners, about drawing people to righteousness, and as many people as we can, taking them out of the darkness and bringing them into the light, taking them out of death and bringing them into life. Those are the things that we're saying, I want to bring to you, I want to bring you into righteousness, the righteousness that God provides, not the righteousness that you yourself can do. And of course, we know that righteousness that God provides can only be through what? Through the finished work of Jesus Christ, where when we believe on his finished work, he gives to us the Holy Spirit and that robe of righteousness that God then accepts. So I think as we're looking to this, as we're looking to hear Daniel warning us of, of that end times war that's going to be going on, the greatest of the tribulation that last three and a half years, he says, I want to, you, to be, you know, to avoid that. And I also want you to avoid that when it comes to this resurrection of dead, that you do not rise to everlasting shame and contempt. And I think this is important when we look to this. Now, that word contempt, that there in verse 2, actually means to thrust away. There's only two times that this word contempt is used in the Old Testament. The first is found um, in Isaiah 66, 24. Don't turn there. Let me just read it to you. But I'm going to read from verses 22 through verse 24, just so you can get the fullness of what this context is, because there's a building, there's a crescendo that's going on before verse 24. It begins in Isaiah 66, these are the last three verses of the entirety of the book. Isaiah saves the very best for last. And what he declares is this in Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. So, so shall your descendants and your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, that all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. So he talks about in this new heavens, this new earth, the blessing of us coming to worship him. But then they, he says this in the very last verse of Isaiah 66, verse 24, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. That word abhorrence to all flesh is that same word where he says you're going to raise to contempt. You're going to be raised and be abhorred. In other words, that those who come through Christ, 
You have everlasting life. This is the blessing. To those who come outside of Christ, he's going to look at your works and, and realize that all of your righteousnesses is as what? As filthy rags. That there's nothing that you can do to make yourself right with God. You have to come through the work of Jesus Christ. And so if you're not coming through the blood of Christ, he looks at you with all of your works and all of your deeds. And in a sense, what we see is this, you're thrust away. And so, you know, you, you come to this place where you're abhorred before God. He, he can't look upon you outside of what? Outside of being in Christ. <laughs> if I wasn't in Christ, he couldn't look upon me either. That's the blessing of us being in the Lord. Now, what happens is this is through where we're noting here that there is a life, there is a life that's after the life that we live, that, you know, death isn't the end. Death is going to be a doorway, and we're going to look at that in just a little bit. But there's a passage, and we quoted this earlier um, as we were going through the book of Daniel, but I want to share it with you one more time. It's found in the Gospel of John, and it's found in chapter 5. In John chapter, wait, chapter 4. Um, John chapter 4, beginning in verse, um, I want to double check this here. No, it is John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 28 and verse 29. He says this, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming um, in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, verse 29 of John 5. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. And so we see here this, this, this truth that John here is trying to open up that everyone is going to see the Lord. We are all going to come forth from the grave. There is going to be this resurrection of the dead where our bodies are going to be raised. Now, as we're looking to this, this is here where that where Daniel is trying to say, listen, the, the whole thing is this. Let them know that there's going to be this incredible violent time on the earth. You want to save people from that. There's also going to be this resurrection of the dead. And if you don't make it to that end time, keep in mind that if you die prior to that, there is going to be this judgment that's going to happen to everyone who's ever lived. There's going to be those who received Christ, God's work. You're going to be to everlasting life. The other to shame and contempt. The, in the oldest book of the Bible, and most scholars believe it, I would agree with them. They say it's the book of Job. And Job himself asked this incredible question there in Job chapter 14, verse 14. Jot it down if you will, but what Job is asking is this. He says, very simply, that if a man dies, will he live again? It's just a question. Is there going to be a resurrection? Is there going to be anything that's after this? If I die, is that simply it? Do I go simply from, you know, being aware of everything to blackness to emptiness? And so he says, if a man dies, will he live again? Well, eventually, in a few chapters after that, he makes this statement in Job chapter 19. I want to read just two verses to you, verse 25 and verse 26. He makes this statement here, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at last on the earth. 
And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh I shall see God. And he makes a statement when he says, will man live again? If he dies, will he live? And he says this, my Redeemer lives. My Redeemer, the one who's going to save me, lives. And he makes this statement. He said, I know that when my flesh, the skin is destroyed, eventually there's going to be a resurrection of me. There's going to be a resurrection of this body. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know that in my flesh, this body is going to be resurrected to a new body. In my flesh, I shall see God. And know this, that is true to everyone who's been ever born. In our flesh, we shall see God. Now, some will see him and they will enter in, as Daniel says, into everlasting life. Some will come and they will see him and they will enter in into everlasting shame and contempt. And so keep in mind that here, this is the context that comes into this passage of bringing many into righteousness. Know this, that everyone that you meet that they are going to one day stand before God and they're either going to come into life everlasting, joy, peace, in, in being in heaven with God, or they're going to go to hell. They're going to be in this place of shame, casting off into abhorrence. And so I think it's important to realize that's the context that, that everything that Daniel has been saying, and now he says this, be a soul winner. How amazing is that, that he says, look at the people who are lost and draw them, draw them into life, draw them into the light, draw them into eternal life. And so as we see here, what Daniel now begins to do is this. After that context, he says now in verse three, once again, read it with me. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. At this point, there's two points of application within this verse to make note of. There's one that says this, those who are wise. What does wise mean? And I think it's important to look at that. And then it declares the next action to say at the end of verse 3, and those who turn many to righteousness. What is that? These are two active points within this passage that you and I have to be aware of is there's actions. There's something required of you and I that, you know, we're not just simply saying, okay, there's lost and God, you have to do what you're going to do. But he's going to use us as instruments. He's going to use us as vessels. And this is what Daniel says, be used as a vessel. If you want to be used as a vessel, he says, those who are wise, they shall shine. Those who are wise, we're going to be the ones who are going to shine. Like the brightness of a firmament, those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. He talks about us being wise. He talks about us turning people. Now, that term wise literally means to, to make or to act, to be let your actions be circumspect. It also means in the sense to instruct or be instructed. Two verses, and I don't want to turn you all over the scriptures. I just want to use Daniel as, as our examples. But for you note takers, you may want to just simply jot it down. In, in, in Daniel chapter 1 verse 4, he simply makes this statement. And this is where we're learning what it is to be wise, to be um, circumspect in this sense. But in Daniel chapter 1 verse 4, he says, The young men 
And this is where the, the king, they, they take the, 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 those of the children of Israel, and they take the young men, verse 4, in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking and gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand. That word understand is that same word that we see here in Daniel 12, 3 for wise. He talks about those who are able to understand and had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. This is what it means to be wise. It means to be able to, one, to understand, um, as it, it talks about there. The other place here is where it talks about understanding what that wisdom is and in how to do that is in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. We've looked at this a few times. I just wanted to share with you one aspect of it because this also means is where that word wise comes into. But in Daniel 9, verse 25, it says this, Know therefore and understand. That's the word wise. And so when he, when he talks about here, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, he talks about there being the, the seven weeks and 62 weeks and the streets shall be built again in the wall and even in troublesome times. So he talks about, I want you to know and understand. That's where this word wise comes in. He says here that if you... In verse 3, those who are wise, those who in a sense are, are able to understand, those who are skillful, that's what it means to be wise. And I think it's, it's important to realize that there is knowledge that we need to have somewhere in the back of our minds or somewhere on the heaviness of our heart of what it means to save souls. And so it talks about here being skillful. It talks about understanding. And then it says this, the next action term to, to use here at the end of verse 3 is this, and those who turn many. That word turn means to make right or to cleanse. And so another passage, just so that you could understand what it is here in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, it talks about using the same word here as, you know, where, where Daniel says to turn. It says in Daniel 8, verse 14, let me simply read it to you. And he said to me, for 2,300 days that the sanctuary shall be cleansed. In other words, shall, there should be a sanctifying that goes on. It's going to take it from the abomination of desolation into being able to be used by God. So here, this is what he's saying, that if you are wise, if you are, are understanding, if you have this ability to be skillful in this application, if you have the ability to understand and you want to make people right, he says this, if you want to turn people to righteousness, you are going to shine. But there is this applicational process to it. For you note takers, jot it down. I think we've quoted it a few times as we've gone finishing the book of Daniel. But in Proverbs 11, verse 30, it says this, that those who, wins, those who win souls are wise. And, I, and it's important. And realize that, that what we are here for, why were you saved? 
Well, you're saying, well, I'm saved because God needed me in heaven. Yeah, that's, that's true. He wanted you in heaven, but also he saved you so that you could do what? So that you, through the light that he's going to shine through you, will draw others who are in darkness into the light. And I think that this is important. One of the things that I think, you know, when it comes to really having a, a desire to see the lost saved... Um, first and foremost, what I want to do is I want to take you to the life of Jesus and I want to show you where he's at because what Jesus has is this. He has a compassion for the lost. And that's a really good question. Just if you're a note taker, just ask this. Do I have a compassion for the lost? Do I have a heart for those who are going to hell? Do, am I really concerned about their eternal state? Or it's like, <laughs> you know, see you later. I'll see you when, when, when there is, I look upon that flesh and the worms will not die. The fire will not quench. And we're going to be looking upon the corpses. We're going to see the suffering. We're going to see what we've been saved from. But understand, are, are you concerned that there are those who are going to be in hell? Now understand, there are those who's going to be there that, that have gone before us. We can't do anything about that, but there are those presently that God has brought you and I in contact to. And keep in mind that, that we can't be that final arbitrator, but we can do what? That we can, one, have compassion for them. Do you see the lost and do you see them as the lost or do you see them simply as vile and fodder for hell? You should never see them as vile and fodder for hell. You should have compassion because at this point we understand what, what, what they're blinded. Now I want to take you to that passage and I told you I would just show you the life of Jesus because when it comes to this, the first question is, is do I have compassion for the lost? In the book of Matthew, chapter 9, I'm going to read just a couple of verses to you. I'm going to start reading in verse 35, and I'm going to read down to the end of that chapter, verse 38. Because in Matthew 9, 35, Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and disease among the people. Now, it talks about here Jesus going through the cities. He's teaching, he's preaching, he's healing. And at that point, that doesn't move him too much. But in the very next verse, it says this, but when he saw the multitudes, when he saw the enormity of those that were there, he was moved with compassion for them. Why was he moved for compassion? Was he moved because of the diseases? Because of, you know, they need to be taught, they need to be preached. No, he was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. They were lost. Do you understand that when you see those who are not saved, you may look at them as saying, you're vile, you're horrible, you're, you know, you're, you're fodder for help. And if you look at them as Jesus sees them, he was moved with compassion because he saw them as weary, as scattered, as sheep. And understand that God calls us what? He calls us his sheep. Even, even we have that thing, Calvary Chapel, where the sheep like to eat, you know, where you come and you digest the word of God. And I think it's important that he sees the lost as sheep, but he sees them as what? Lost sheep. So often when we see the lost, all we see is what we see, wolves. 
We see wolves. Would you look at the lost and would you see them as sheep? And he sees them as sheep, what? Having no shepherd. And all we want to do is we want to do what? <laughs> Let me take you to the good shepherd. Let me bring you to the good shepherd. And, and let me bring you to his life and his light and his compassion and his joy. Let me bring you to him. And so he then, after he has compassion on the lost, not because of their diseases, but because they're lost. He sees them as sheep. He sees them as weary. He sees them as those who have no shepherd. They're scattered. And he, he wants to do what? He wants to bring them all in. He wants to, like, like, a, like a hand, bring them underneath his wings. He wants to comfort them. He wants to bring them peace. So he says to his disciples in Matthew 9, verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, keep in mind that when we see here the laborers are few, I don't know if this laborers are few means this, that there's very few Christians that are there who can actually share to the lost or let me put one more you know, thought by you. There's very few Christians that have compassion for the lost. See, I don't know if it's just there's not enough Christians. I, you, you think about where we are. There's a lot of Christians. But here's the question. Do the Christians actually have a compassion for the lost? Are they concerned that they are weary and they're scattered and they're sheep without a shepherd? Or do you just simply not care? And I think this is where it's important for us to, to realize, you know what, there is this vast multitude that is going to destruction. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 9, or um, Matthew chapter 7 verses, um, Matthew chapter 7 verse 13 and 14, he makes this statement. Let me read it to you. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So we see that within the multitude of humankind that there is this wide place that, that leads to destruction. And, and within this, there's a broad way and a broad door, and there are many who go into it. But then there's this very narrow door and a very narrow gate, and it's difficult to get in there. Why? Because you have to humble yourself, empty yourself, and say, it's not me. Humble yourself, bow down before the Lord, and realize my access is only because and through him. And so we see here that there's, there's many on one path, few who narrow on this other path. And I'm, I'm really curious how many of those that are on that path that are going to heaven are just happy that, hey, I'm on that path and I'm in the door. Versus looking back and seeing the multitude, how many and how broad the way of those who are going to destruction. So when the Lord asked and he says the laborers are few, and it could be just there's very few Christians, but I, I really, as I'm praying through this, as I'm growing in my faith, I'm wondering, is it really that there's few laborers is meaning that out of all the Christians that are there, how many actually have a desire for 
the lost. There's a passage I want to share it with you found, found in Psalm 126. And, and I want to share this because in verse 5 and 6, it talks about here another thing about bringing you know, your rewards into heaven. But I think it's important to see this that in Psalm 126. I'm going to read um, in verse 5 and 6. It declares this, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. The reason I want to share this passage is it just simply talks about the, the sowing and the reaping. But when it talks about the sowing and reaping, keep in mind that this is, in this psalm, a type of witnessing. And when you see this, and I love the fact that when it comes to sharing our faith, it says this, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. That when you have a burden for the lost and they come to know the Lord, no longer are you shedding those tears because you have a heart because they're lost. But now you have this joy because you're found. You have life. And you will be with me forever in heaven. And you, you sow in tears because you're burdened, because they are lost, because they are going to hell. There are going to be that place where the worm never dies and the fire's never quenched. But for those who want and say, yes, I want what you have. I want the light that is in you. I want the joy that is in you. You will sow in tears, but you will reap in joy. When one sinner comes and in the point of repentance and gives their heart to Jesus Christ. It says that all the angels in heaven rejoice. There's a party for one. Now keep in mind that these are the ones that what Jesus was weeping over, that had compassion over, that he saw them what? As lost sheep, scattered, weary, having no shepherd. And he saw them and realized, you know what? You're sheep. I want to bring you into my fold. This is the heart. So those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping. When you have a lifestyle of being burdened for the lost, and this is what it's saying, you continually go forth weeping. Bearing seed for sowing. That you're, you see the lost and you're concerned for them, but you're always what? Sowing the seed, the word of God. You're always saying, it's, it's Jesus, it's life. When they look at you being different from them, when they're all worried and troubled about many things, is how do you have peace through this time? How do you have joy through this time? How can you not be angry over what all these things are happening you know, to us as a culture and through our government? How can you have peace? And you can say this, I have Jesus. Let them see that peace, that joy, that confidence, that strength in you. But he says this, he who continually goes forth weeping, you have a heart continually for the lost, and you're bearing the seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing. That as you're scattering the seed to the lost, you're sharing them the word of God, you're sharing them hope that you have found that eventually you're going to come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. 
This is the light that here Daniel is talking about. Remember there in, in verse 3 where he said, Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of a firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. You bring a glory with you. It was funny this morning, we were there in, in our first service, and as Tim was giving forth this incredible word, that one of the brothers said, man, Lowell, you know, you could tell you've been out in the sun. You're just shining. You're, you're just all this. And what he didn't realize is what he should have. Re- I wore a hat the whole day yesterday. And so I was talking to Tim like, you just see my glory. But don't worry. I'm gonna, it's going to fade. It's going to fade. You know, and he says, get on your mask. Get on your mask. I can't bear the glory. And we had a great time in that first service. But what we're seeing is this. That there's a shining that's going to go on. It's not just being in the sun and glowing. That shining that's going to go on is this. That there is this joy because what? Lives have been turned. Those who are on that broad road now are on that narrow road. And so we have this true heart of compassion for them. I was reading a book on soul winning a long time ago, and it had this passage in it, and and I want to share it with you because it talked about a young minister. And what he did is, is in a message to his congregation, he put it into perspective so well. What this young minister had said was this. He simply said, millions of people are going to hell And most people don't give a damn. That's what he said. And then he said this, and this is what brought it into perspective. And he he made this statement. He says, "Now, now, when I said that millions of people are going to hell, that most of you are more worried and more upset that I use the word damn than than when I said millions of people are going to hell. What a perspective. Now, you know, I don't normally say that from the pulpit, and I can only read it because it was someone else who said it. I'm not the one who's saying it. I'm quoting someone else who did, but I think that perspective is wise, that there are more people who literally are upset because how can vulgar, even something as simple as that, be said from the pulpit, but they have nothing in their heart that moves them when you say millions of people are going to hell. And believe it or not, that's only in this state. That's only right now in this state, and it may even be simply in, in our you know, county that we live in. And I think it's so important to realize there are millions of people who are going to hell. And does that move you? Does that move you at all? And I find it just so encouraging to see that here's the thing. If you want to really see the lost be saved, one is, where's your heart? Do you have compassion? And the other is this. Not only should you have a compassion for the lost, but it's also truly important to know who is the one who saves the soul. See, you're a vessel. You're a sower of seeds. You don't save the soul. You simply do what? You you give out the, the, the seed. You give out the watering. But it's Jesus Christ who simply saves the soul. There's a passage, just write it down if you're a note taker. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to read um, basically verses 5 through 11. It's key to this. Let me share it with you. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 5, Paul says this, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? 
but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Understand, there's a foundation. The foundation is Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ. Paul said, I have desires to know nothing among, among you except Jesus Christ and crucified. His death, his resurrection, his payment for our sins on the cross, that's the foundation. But then what? Then we, we, we plant, we, we, we sow, we water. And keep in mind that there's all kinds of people who do that. There are people who sow, there are people who plant, there are people who water. And then eventually what happened is God brings the increase. It's God, it's his spirit that does the work. And I'm so excited for that. There are times that there are some people who are ministering and teaching and opening up the scripture and they're meeting with people. And all of a sudden there's going to be other people who will be sharing and teaching. And then all of a sudden it's going to take one person, one time that someone says, listen, I want to pray. And I want to accept Jesus Christ. And you're able to be there as a witness, as this proclamation, as this change begins to take place. But listen, you didn't do all the planting. You didn't do all the sowing. You didn't do all the watering. But you get to what? You get to help be a part of that. You get to see God bring his increase. Because we sow, we water, but God is the one who does the harvesting. And I think it's important to realize that, that we aren't the ones who save. And when God does save, it's not on our timeline. How often do we go and we want to share the word of God and we want to share the promises of God, and yet someone does what? They walk away. And they go, oh my goodness, what a waste. It's not a waste. Why? Because you're sowing or you're watering. And that's all you have to do to realize all he wants me to do is just take a moment right now and pour a little bit of water on that seed. I don't know who's planted that seed, but I'm going to just throw a little bit of water on there. I'm going to pray for that person and, and ask for God to move and to, 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 to minister. And so you have those that are planting seeds, giving out the word. You have those that are, are watering, pouring and praying for this person and watching the spirit move. The whole thing about being a soul winner is this, simply pointing to Jesus Christ. That's all you have to do. That's the key to being a soul winner. I want to take you just real briefly into the first part of the Gospel of John. There's four instances right there at the very beginning of the Gospel of John, and I just kind of want to share them with you just so that you can have this right perspective. It begins in John chapter 1, verse 36, where, of course, we see John the Baptist. There is he's baptizing, and it says here... Um, Looking at Jesus, John is looking at Jesus. Let me back up to verse 35. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. 
He says, in looking at Jesus as he walked, this is looking at Jesus as Jesus walked, he said, behold the Lamb of God. I love it. John's with his disciples. He doesn't say, hey, look at me, how great a disciple I am. Look at me, how much I'm doing. Look at how many people I baptized. Are you keeping numbers now? Who's doing the tally? He doesn't do this. His whole ministry is, I must decrease, Jesus must increase. And he looks at his, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. You understand? He just pointed them to Jesus Christ. The very next thing that we see here is when you go down to verse 40, it says this, and the two who heard John speak and followed him were Andrew and were Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. One of the two who heard John speak. So when John says, behold the Lamb of God, one of them was Andrew. So what Andrew does is this in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus now, when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, and you shall be called Cephas, which is translated as stone. Now, it's interesting that throughout the gospel, that when you hear of the disciples, it normally speaks of an inner three. And they're, they're, they're put into this order, Peter, James, and John. Always, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Now, understand, if it wasn't for Andrew, there would be no... Peter in the James and John. Andrew was the one who John says, behold the lamb. Andrew went and saw the lamb. So what does he do? He goes and gets Peter and says, Peter, let me take you to Jesus. Let me point him out to you. And I love the heart of this because when someone points you to Jesus and you receive life, guess what you should do? Find someone else and point them to Jesus that they too could receive life. Directly after this, in verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So all of a sudden, Jesus gets Philip. Philip now sees Jesus. Philip does what? He gets Nathaniel. Do you see what this is? This is finding someone that said, listen, I want to point you to Jesus Christ. This is the heart. But so often, what do we do? Well, the, the bottom line is we get busy. We get busy and we got to get things done. And it's all about getting things done. It's all about, you know, doing the deed and not what? Not seeing the sheep. And we get so busy in the works that we do, we forget that there is literally many who are on this broad road that leads to destruction. The last place I want to take you to is, is there in the Gospel of John chapter 4. And, and you guys know the passage. You know it well. We've covered it when we went through the Gospel of John. But all of a sudden, Jesus himself in verse 4, it talks about he needed to go through Samaria. And, and it... it literally means he needed to go through Samaria. Now, why did he need to go around? Because he had to stop here. He had an appointment here. Now, one of the things that he needed to do is he needed to meet a woman, but there's more that he needed to do. But he needed to go through Samaria. So, verse 5, he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, on a plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, 
Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore being wearied in his journey, and thus sat by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now notice verse 8, and this is key to what we're going to be seeing. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Don't just think that as a side note. That's key to what we're going to see. Jesus is there sitting at the well. The disciples, all of them, go into the city to buy food. And this one woman comes out in the heat of the day. Now, she comes out in the heat of the day because she's scorned. She doesn't want to be around with all the other women. The other women come early in the morning, late at night when it's cool, so they can talk and they can be among each other. And this woman here does not want to be with the other one. Why? Well, because she's had so many husbands, and the one that she's living with now is not her husband. Well, Jesus begins to dialogue with this woman. And eventually what we see is this. As he dialogues with this woman, it then comes to verse 28. And note this in John 4, 28. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? So in verse 27, keep in mind that just before the woman leaves, it says in verse um, 27, at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, why, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The disciples come back and they see the woman. Nobody says anything, but when the disciples come back, the woman goes into town. Where does the woman go? She goes into the same town that the disciples were in to buy food. But I want you to see what she does different than the disciples. It says here that she leaves her water pot at the well. Doesn't even take it with her. Just forget it. I've got. I, she goes into the city and she said to the men, Do you realize she doesn't bring her water pot back? So why is she going into the city? Because she's talking to the people in the city. She has a heart for the people. And she says in verse 29, come see a man who told me all the things I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And so she tells the people, you got to come see this guy. You got to see this guy. Could he be the Christ? And I love the heart of it because they're in verse 36. Jesus saying, he says, now he who reaps receive wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. And so we, we say here in verse 37, or what we see in, in verse 37 is, for this is the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored and others have labored and you've entered into your own labors. And verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I ever did. This is amazing. You have all these disciples that go into the city, and what do they do? They buy food. <laughs> you got to love these guys. Now, keep in mind that they are, these are the apostles, not the B-apostles, not the C-apostles. They're the apostles. And they go into the city, and all they do is this. Ah, oh, man, i got to go buy some food. And they walk through this entire city of lost and as they walk through this city of lost, all they have into one mind is this. I got to munch. I got to eat. I got to get some food. 
And this woman who was going out to get water, a greater necessity is thirst than food. A greater leaves her water pot, goes to the city, starts talking to the men and says, you got to see this guy. You got to see this guy. And through them coming to see Jesus, I love verse 39. Many of the Samaritans, that city believed on him. Not because the apostles brought them, not because the disciples brought them, but because this woman who was shamed and an outcast brought them. This is amazing to me to see here. This is the heart. And this is why I look to that passage of seeing that even there, you know, we're in Matthew 9, that there's a lot and the laborers are so few. And I wonder, is it because there's not enough Christians or because there's not enough Christians with compassion? Not enough Christians that have a burden for the lost. And so we begin to see here, and I love the heart, just bringing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. Let your testimony be, you need to see this man that has changed my life. You've got to hear these words that have radically transformed my thinking. I want you to come and be with me in eternity. Now keep in mind, you can share the words and you can pray that person in and you can, you know, sow and you can, you know, water. But keep in mind, it's always going to be God's timing. But you will never waste a seed you sow. You will never waste the watering that you do because it's all a process. Understand that when you plant the seed and, and, it, and it waters, what has to happen is what? Well, the seed itself eventually has to die and then it germinates. And you don't see the germination. You don't see what God's doing because that's all done under the ground. But eventually you see what? Little things popping up. And you say, oh, there could be life here. There could be life here. Now understand that as that life is there, there's going to be those who are on shallow ground. And, and you know, they'll, first a stony ground, they'll never come to life. Another shallow ground, they're going to spring up immediately because there's no root. They're going to wither away. Others are going to be tares that are going to come and choke out the life. But there's going to be those who bear fruit. And it's not for us to judge what. It's us to what? Just to simply give them to the Lord. That's the key. But to have a compassion, draw them to the Lord. And I think you have to understand is to know that what is it that saves the soul? Two verses for you, note taker to jot down. The first is, is found in, in Psalm, verse nine, or Psalm chapter 19. I'm going to read a couple of verses to you because I think it's important to keep this in the context. But it says this in verse 7 of Psalm 19. And I'm going to read down to verse 11 because I think it's so important for you to, to see the fullness of the, the, the context. Because this is that psalm that opens up, the heavens declare the glory of God. But in verse 7 it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Understand, it's, it's the law. The law, which is, we want no part of the law. We want grace. Understand, but the word of God is what? It simply is heart revealed. That's what the law is. And the law itself is, is perfect. It's holy. It's just, it's good. The law wasn't the problem. It was our inability to keep that law. But we need to say that God has a standard. The law of the Lord is perfect. It converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. 
Understand that what we see here is the law of the Lord. The word of God is that which converts the soul. And as we see here, we understand it's the word. It's the word. It's the word. You bring them light. You bring them the, you know, that which is living and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. That's what you bring. You bring the word of God. The other is this. In Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, jot it down. I want to read it to you. It says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the souls. So when you're telling the people about the word of God, keep in mind that there is one thing that redeems the soul. Only one thing that can redeem a soul, and that is blood. That's blood. Blood redeems the soul. Nothing else. It doesn't say obedience redeems the soul. It doesn't say sacrifice redeems the soul. It doesn't say works redeem the soul. Blood redeems the soul. This is why in the Old Testament there was an altar. There wasn't a workstation to sign up for good deeds. It wasn't like, hey, just go to this tent, sign up for a work, you'll be good for another day. No, there wasn't a workstation. Do you understand? There was an altar. There was only one thing that took place on the altar. Death and death and death. Blood being shed, blood being shed, blood being shed. And when the blood was shed, they're like, hey, I'm right for another day. And then what? Blood again in the morning, blood again in the evening. The morning, the evening sacrifices, always blood, always blood. Why wasn't there a workstation? Why wasn't there this whole thing? Teach me how to work for God. There wasn't one. There wasn't, hey, you know, here's this, this work development center for Christianity. There was blood. And when you realize there's only one thing as you're sharing the word of God, as you're sharing them, this beautiful truth that the law of the Lord is the perfect, it converts the soul. What then redeems the soul? What atones for the soul? Blood and only blood. And they're either going to like it or not like it. They can receive it or not receive it. But you have to share the truth. Only blood redeems. Now understand that what Hebrews tells us is this, the blood of bulls and goats, they were only temporary. Why? Because that sacrifice continues day after day. You know it was temporary. But here, the blood of Jesus Christ was shed once and for all. And it will never have to be shed again. Why? Because it was God's blood that was shed on the cross. And through his blood being shed, that's the redemption of mankind. We see this beautiful thing that goes on. When we're sharing with the lost, you have to let them know. There's only one thing that can redeem your soul. Only one thing that could atone for your soul. And that's why it's so important that somewhere in your head, somewhere in your heart, you have to have Leviticus 17, 11 down. Because there's only one thing that atones for the soul, and that's blood. Not work, not deeds, not, not worship, not anything you can do. It's blood. And realize that Jesus Christ did what? He shed his blood. That is what atones for the soul. Keep in mind that him being on the cross didn't atone for the soul. His shedding his blood on the cross atoned for your soul. Because what Colossians is, the handwriting of the requirement that was against us, he's taken it all the way, having nailed it to the cross, paying the price in full, shedding his perfect blood. That is what atones for the soul. And so as we see here, I just think it's so important that, that, that when you look at Leviticus 17, 11, it's, it's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now, 
When it comes to sharing with the lost, people, they either think they're right with God because they have a God of their own making and they say, this is what my God wants me to do and I have fulfilled that. And me and God, we're like this. And they have this God of their own making. It's not the God of the Bible. It's the God of their imaginations or the God that someone taught them, but it's not the God of scripture. But they think they're right with God. And there are others who, honestly, they don't care if they're right with God. They're, they're content being who they are and what they are. And, and, and I think it's important that there are also those who believe this, that they have time to get right with God. And those are the three. They, they think they're right. There are others, I don't care if I'm right. And there are others, I have time to get right. And, and I think it's important to realize that we see here there's a truth. Jot this down. It's just a, a perfect verse for getting clarity to who these people, what they're facing in the world. In, in 1 John, in his epistle, in 1 John 5, 19, he says this, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Everything. And so this whole world, he is the prince of this world at this point. The whole world lies under a sway and he's blinded those he scattered those. He's made them weary, and, and they're, they're wounded. And, and God says, listen, I want to gather you. I want to bring you to me. And, and I think it's important that where, where they are right now is they're blinded, and they don't realize that there's life in Jesus Christ. And, and they have that mindset, sort of like the children of Israel when they were going through the wilderness. If you're familiar with that passage there, in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, I want to read two verses to you, verse 5 and 6. It says this, The people spoke against God and against Moses. This is, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. He gave them manna. And they said, Our soul loathes this. We're tired of manna. We want something different. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, but they bit the people, they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. As soon as he said, I, I loathe what you have to offer. This word of God is what? It's the bread of life. Jesus Christ is the bread of life, and they loathe that. They don't want that life. They want a life of their own making. They want a life of their own doing. There's another passage in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 15 and 16. Jot down those verses, but it declares this. He says in verse 15, And if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgment, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, I will also do this for you. I will appoint, even appoint terror over you, and I think it's so important that if you loathe his word, if you loathe his bread, if you loathe his provision, then he says, listen, I'm going to simply just cast you off. And that's where they are. They, they have no understanding that this word is life. They, have, they, they think it's just a book. It's just a good book. And it's, it's a really powerful book. But they don't read the book and they don't believe what's in the book. We, on the other hand, we want this book. And I think it's so important to realize that when you have a heart for the lost and you have that compassion for the lost, know what saves the soul. Point them to Jesus Christ. Just point them. He's the one. He's the one. He's the one. But I want you to realize it's the law. It's this word that's going to save them. 
and you pointing out it's the blood that atones. Only the blood atones for the soul. And so what are the actions that we do as soul winners? Well, the first thing is what? Well, have that heart moved for compassion. I think it's so important to realize that you have to have that heart. You want to realize, I got to point him to the Lord, point him to the Lord, point him to the Lord. But we, we noted this earlier, and I just want to share with you that passage, but it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. Let me just simply read it to you. You don't have to turn there, but let me just share this with you. Chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, verse 4 and verse 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts himself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Here's the key. When you have this heart for the, the lost and you realize the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal. They're, they're not man-made. Our weapons are mighty in God. They pull down the enemy strongholds. Everything that he does to hold the lost, what God does is he gives us weapons that will tear down the walls. You have to understand, the walls that we face of the enemy are like the walls the children of Israel faced in Jericho. Walls they couldn't even comprehend. So what does God do? Just walk around the wall, walk around the wall, walk around the wall, and in the end, shout to me. Pray and pray and pray and then worship. Worship your hearts out. And as they gave that shout and the trumpet, what happened to the walls? Fell down. Just fell down. Now within that, keep in mind that there's those in the city. There was Rahab and her whole family that God had what? I had you pointed out, that scarlet robe of redemption that you're going to come and you're going to be saved. And brings them out, saves her and her whole family. This beautiful picture of how we go in and we seek to save the lost. But our, our weapons are not like the world's. We don't have to persuade them through words. We, we simply do what? I'm not here to try to weave a good story and try to convince you because if I can try to convince you into receiving Christ, someone else can convince you into not receiving Christ. And you're going to go back and forth. But if you are allowed through the Spirit of God to open up your heart and open up your eyes and come to Christ, then it's the Spirit of God who does what? Sets a seal upon you and you are His. And I think it's so important. Don't try to convince them. Put into Jesus Christ. This is the heart. So we see that there's, there's one passage that, and I'd actually like you to, to, to turn there, found in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I want to read the first six verses because this is so much the key to being a soul winner and why I want you to actually be here and, and gravitate to what it is. Now, while you're turning there to 1 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to read to you James chapter 5, um, starting from verse, the end of verse 16, and I'm going to read all the way through verse 18. But in, in James uh, chapter 5, at the end of verse 16, it says this, pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Understand Prayer brings rain. Rain waters seeds. And it's so important to realize that this is the heart that God begins to do. Now, in that passage that I had you turn to in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
Beginning in verse 1, it says this, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and the giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, it doesn't say be made for the saved. It doesn't say to be made for those that attend Calvary Chapel. It says, I exhort first of all supplications, prayer, intercessions, and the giving of thanks. Do you realize that you need to give thanks for the lost? Why? Because they are sheep. They are weary. They are scattered. They are without a shepherd. That's how the Lord sees them. And so he says, I want you, the giving of thanks, be made for all men, for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead, and note this, lead a quiet and peaceable life with all godliness and reverence, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. I find this interesting that what God wants us to do is not to get our bullhorns and talk about how our rights are being trampled and not to talk about how you know, unjust our society is by making us do certain things. But what we need to do is this. We need to be praying for them. And we need to be living. And I find this important. It says in the end of verse 2 that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Be at peace. If they want you to do something, be at peace. If they want you to do something that's against Scripture, like don't de declare the gospel, be at peace and declare the gospel. I don't, I don't have to worry about what you're going to do. But I'm going to realize there's certain things that God says I need to do and I must do. Other things, I don't have to worry about, you know, them thinking, me thinking my rights are being trampled because I'm going to be living this, this quiet and peaceable life. A life that is simply saying, listen, I'm trusting in God. I'm not trusting in government. I'm trusting in what God wants me to do. I'm going to lead this quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. And here's the key. As a Christian, what I'm seeing going on in, in our culture today is Christians aren't leading a quiet life. They're not leading a peaceful life. They're not leading a life of reverence. And so we're seeing here that, that what's happening is this. He says in verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. He says to just be at peace in me. Rest in me. Worship me. Don't worry about what they're going to do. Rest in me. I'm the one that did the work. And listen, that while you're worried about what the government is doing and what they're making you do or not making you do, what's happening is this. There's lost who are going to hell. And I think it's important to realize that our focus is all off. The enemy wants to get us all into this, this whole, let, let's, let's be these, these people who try to advocate for what we should be doing as a church. What we should be doing as a church is this, is having a heart for the lost and praying for those that are doomed. And when we have that heart for the lost, and then look at verse 3. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth. Now understand, when he, he wants all men to be saved, it's still us, what? Leading a quiet and peaceable life. And that we lead a life of godliness and reverence. It's a life of worshiping God, of honoring God. This is, I think, the key. So as we see here, let, let people see your joy that you have in Christ. Let them see your peace that you have in Christ. Let them see your confidence that, God, you're on the throne. I want to see this. I want you to see that there's a difference in me. 
We've talked about this before. They used to have a, a sign that was there on my, on my uh, bulletin board. And you know, bulletin boards, you, know, you put things on, you take things off, and they constantly change over. But this sign once said this, that if the difference that Jesus makes doesn't make a difference, what difference does it make? If people don't see a difference because Jesus Christ is in your life, really what difference does it make? If you have Jesus in your life and you're the same as you were, well, really what difference is Jesus doing in your life? But if you begin to see there's a sanctification that's going on through the Spirit and through the Word, this is the difference. And so understand, He desires that all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. This is the heart. This is where God wants us. He wants us to live a life that shows that Jesus Christ in me has made a difference. And I love that because I'm at peace. I'm at rest. And, and I think when I lead this quiet and peaceable life with godliness and reverence, what difference, how is that going to be so radically different than everyone else who's out there? That I can be at peace knowing that, God, you're on the throne and you, you have me eternally secure. And to realize, of course, that, that we learned that what, um, where we talked about there in, in, in Psalm 19, how it's, it's that word of God, that word of God that is going to bring that beautiful understanding. Let me just share that one more time where it says in Psalm 19, verse 17, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. That's what I want to do. I want to share that, that word. I want to share that, that, that which is true. Because what Hebrews chapter 4 tells us is the word of God is living, it's powerful, it's sharper than a two-edged sword, it's piercing even to the division and, and the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intent of the heart. And there's no creature that's hidden from its sight. The word of God is eventually going to prick everything, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is the key to being a soul winner. I want to close as far as this whole message on being a soul winner, of being those who lead to righteousness, by sharing you one passage in the book of Acts. And if you would, just turn there and find yourself there in Acts chapter 4. There's only going to be two verses we're going to look at, and this is how we're going to close today's message. But in Acts chapter 4, two verses, I want to read verses 12 and I want to read verses 13. Because I believe that this is the capsulation of everything where we as soul winners would need to understand and need to be. It says this in Acts chapter 4. After um, Peter and John are, are put into um, custody. But it says this in verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's about Jesus Christ. They wanted them not to speak of the name of Jesus. They said, Listen, there's no other name that I can declare. I have to declare this name. But notice verse 13. As they're professing Jesus, they're professing there's something different about them. Verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, and they marveled. Now they see Peter, they, they see John, they, they see this, and they go, man, you're a bunch of hicks. And they're amazed. Now here's the key. 
The key is the last part of verse 13, because when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived they were uneducated, untrained men. They marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. You want to be a soul winner? (laughs) Hang out with Jesus. Just hang out with Jesus. And it talks about this fragrance. The fragrance of life is going to be upon you. When you're working with flowers and all of a sudden you leave, you still smell like flowers. It's amazing. Yesterday, it was one of these things where I, I came in, and these guys were already working. They were already sweaty. And, and I came to one of my brethren, and, and he says, man, you don't want to hug me. He says, I'm all sweaty. I said, don't worry. I don't mind sweaty. And I gave him a hug. That fragrance stuck with me for a while until the wind came and, and moved it on. But you have to understand that when you get near to a fragrance, it sticks with you. When you get near to Jesus, I'll tell you what, that fragrance of life is on you. It's so important to let that fragrance of life come upon you. And this is that beauty. They they see them and they look past them. You guys are uneducated. You guys are untrained. But you guys have been with Jesus. If you are a light and if the world realizes that, yeah, you're not all that trained, you're not all that educated, but man, oh man, do you hang out with Jesus And I try to teach people that the real key to ministry isn't about learning what the ministry is. It's about hanging out with Jesus. He is the ministry. And it's whatever his will is at that time. That's the ministry. And if you want to be a soul winner, if you want to point people to Jesus, then you need to just hang out with him. Just hang out with him. And when you hang out with him, you're going to have that fragrance and you're going to have his heart. And you, when you see the lost, are not going to look and be dismayed. You're not going to look and be bitter. You're not going to look and be angry. You're going to look and you're going to have compassion. And you're going to realize these sheep are weary and they're scattered and they're lost and they need a shepherd. And I want to send it to my Jesus. And let him usher them in. And let them hear his voice. This is the key. And, and yeah, we, we just point them to Jesus. We point them to Jesus. We, we give them the word. We, we pray for them. And we pray for them. And we pray for them. Because what? The prayer is power. The prayer is power. And worship God because he's going to bring salvation to the lost. This is the heart, and this is the key, and this is the soul winner. So, so when you are there, as Daniel says, those who are wise will shine. You have a heart to see the lost. You're going to shine in heaven like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There's going to be everyone you turn is just a little bit more light, a little bit more light that you're shining, just that glory of God that you're taking into heaven and say, I was part of the work. There was planting, there was watering, but God, to your glory, you brought them in. Not me, you brought them in. And to you and you alone be the glory. So I think it's a great word for us that that when we come to what's going on in our culture, what is the thing that moves you? What is the thing that, that encapsulates your mind? And I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of things that you could be frustrated in when you look at society, but the biggest thing that you should be moved on is not what's happening in politics. It's not what's going to happen in this next election, but this, that there are lost. There are lost. And I'll be honest with you, there are Republicans who are lost, and there are Democrats who are lost, and there are independents who are lost. Why? We're all lost. 
There's only one thing that will bring them all. And that's what? Just point them to Jesus. Let him be the answer. Because that's what they're seeking. They just don't know it yet. May that be our heart. Amen? Amen. Father, do thank you for this word. We thank you that as you have brought us through Daniel, and we've seen so many events that took place in his life, we've seen that his opening up of prophecy, and we've read this prophecy is history, knowing that all these things are true. And that as he spoke, there's going to be future prophecy, and one day we will see that too as history. And yes, there's devastation coming, Lord. We know that. But more than the devastation that's coming, there's going to be a time that, that all who have already passed, all who will die before this time, that they will be resurrected. There's going to be a resurrection of the body. There is going to be a resurrection of the dead. And in that, they will be judged. There will be some who will be judged and they will go to everlasting life. And praise God that you've allowed us to be in that group. But there are others who are going to go to shame and everlasting um, contempt And those are the ones, Lord, that we want to reach. Those are the ones that we have a heart for. That we're not content, Lord, that they're there. We want to turn them off that broad road. And so help us, Lord, to see them and the direction that they're walking. And help us have a burden to seek to turn them around and bring them on that narrow road. Let us, Lord, be those laborers. Not simply Christians, but Christians that have a burden for the lost. Oh, the, the, the field is ripe, and there's such a harvest that's there, but yet so often we're like the disciples going into town simply to be about your business, getting food, doing this, when we realize and, and fail to realize there's a whole city that's lost, and it takes one woman who runs back and tells them to come to you. And there are those who are saved. Father, let us have that heart just to see the lost and bring them to you. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name, and all the saints of God said, amen.